Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me, as usual, is my good friend and co-host, Scott Emanway. Say hello, Scott. Oh, hello, everybody. Hello, everybody. Hello, I love you all. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of a curious cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the darker side of history. Hey. And this one is a little on the darker side of history. It is. It should be exciting. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and a Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some Dark Poutine. Chomp, chomp, chomp. <laughs> Before we start, we have a bit of a reminder. We're going to CrimeCon from June 7th to 9th, 2019 in New Orleans, Louisiana. Oh, I cannot wait. I'm excited too. Me too. If you're going to go to CrimeCon, go to the website CrimeCon.com to get your ticket. Yep. And use our code Poutine19 at checkout to get 10% off. That's Poutine19. Poutine19. The number's 19. That's correct. Get 10% off. It helps us get some, uh, we're out of pocket going to this, and so it just helps uh, helps uh, take care of some things, the more people who use our code. So poutine19. Yep, and if we get more people using that code, we'll probably be invited back next year. Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to just getting flat out banned next yeah. year. No, no, you guys can't even you guys, attend, to, you, you can't even be, get, you guys can't even come to, to watch. Yeah. This is episode 66, but I was thinking it should be called episode 666 due to its content. Ooh, why is that, Mike? Well, we begin this episode with the story of Esther Cox and mm-hmm. the great Amherst mystery. Oh, I'm I'm intrigued. What, what tell, tell us more about this mystery. Uh, well, the story goes that young Esther Cox of Amherst, Nova Scotia, was the center of one of the most investigated and best documented and as yet unexplained poltergeist events in Canadian history. Oh, sweet sassy molassie, I can't wait. What? Oh. We have a special guest who I interviewed, Morgan Knudsen, a scientific paranormal investigator and TV and radio personality, who will give more insight on this bizarre case and a few more. Oh, man, this Morgan sounds fascinating. Oh, she is. She's really cool. You can see Morgan in Blue Ant Media's new docuseries, 
Paranormal 911. And this TV show follows first responders as they encounter the supernatural when responding to emergency calls. Oh, interesting. And it premiered the day before this podcast dropped on March 24th, 2019. Oh, that's interesting. On Travel and Escape Channel here in Canada. And that's called... T plus E, and you can yeah, watch yeah. watch new episodes Sunday nights on T and E. What's it called again? Paranormal nine one one. Okay, well, I'm gonna check. And she that. also does another show called Haunted Hospitals, and you can find uh, episodes of that. You would think that those would be like the most populated uh, ghost vicinities. Yeah, we places. talk about it a little later on. Oh, so there you yeah. Go. On to the great Amherst mystery: the story of Esther Cox. Esther Cox was born in Upper Stewiak, Nova Scotia, on March 28, 1860. Uh, any relation to Lower Stewiak? Yes, it, Upper Stewiak is above, above Lower Stewiak. Oh, how weird. Esther's mother died of complications caused by Esther's birth three weeks after she was born. Yikes. Esther was so tiny, her grandmother, who'd been left to raise her and her other siblings, had to keep Esther on a small pillow for safety until she was almost nine months old. How crazy. It was reported that even at nine months, Esther was still tiny. Okay. Esther's father remarried and moved to Maine with his new wife, leaving the kids behind with their grandmother. Wait a minute. So the father... Well, and, well the wife, his first wife, died. He, he, well, yeah, but... He, so I'm just going to leave my kid. Z. Kids. Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's... I, I got a question. A uh, few... Uh, bits of his uh, character there but whatever okay all right yeah well i mean yeah, it was the 1800s so we don't know we can't actually question him on so this. there's no video archive <laughs> no oh, okay in a book called haunted house by paranormal investigator and author and actor walter hubble esther is described this way in person esther is of low stature and rather inclined to be stout. Her hair is curly, of a dark brown color, and is now short, reaching only to her shoulders. Her eyes are large and gray, with a bluish tinge, and an earnest expression which seems to say, Why do you stare at me so? I cannot help if I am not like other people. Her eyebrows and eyelashes are dark and well-marked, that is to say, the lashes are long and the eyebrows very distinct. Her face is what can be called round, with well-shaped features. She has remarkably handsome teeth and a pale complexion. Her hands and feet are small and well-shaped, and although inclined to be stout, she is fond of work and is a great help to her sister Olive, although sometimes requires a little urging. Esther's disposition is naturally mild and gentle. She can at times, however, be very self-willed, and is bound to have her own way when her mind is made up. If asked to do anything she does not feel like doing, she becomes very sulky and has to be humored at times to keep pace with the family. However, all things considered, she is a good little girl and has always borne a good reputation in every sense of the word. I think I just had a paranormal experience. I'm pretty confident Walter Hubble was sitting next to me here. I'm, I'm certain he was too. And what a cool, like, I want him to, like, describe everything in my life. 1800s authors are very flowery. I, 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 I love that her face 
is what can be called round. You can just say, like, she had a round face, couldn't you? But it, it could be. There's a lot of extra words. It's fantastic. <laughs> After Esther's grandmother's death, Esther and her siblings moved to Amherst to live with family. Then 18-year-old Esther Cox, her sister Jane, and brother William live with their older sister Olive, a busy housewife, and her husband Daniel Teed, a humble shoemaker by trade. Mm. The small house on Amherst, Nova Scotia's Princess Street, number 6, was packed full. Hey, it sounds like it. Daniel's brother, John, lived in the house along with the Teed's young children, George, five, and Willie, seven. So there was a lot of people in it, this little place. And it was probably like a one-bedroom. Although not large rooms, there were four bedrooms upstairs, two at each end of the house, a sitting room downstairs with a dining room, a kitchen, and a pantry. In his book, Walter Hubble went on to say that the commodious dining table in the dining room was very inviting. And about the house itself, let's hear from him. In fact, everything about the little cottage will impress a casual observer with the fact that its inmates are happy and evidently at peace with God and man. Okay, so two uh, questions. Like, I think what the hell like is a, a commodious table? Because commodious, like, you don't, like don't you... you're thinking about a commode. Yeah, I'm thinking like, don't you poop in a commode? So like a commodious table, does it ha like are you? Is it a table you can poop? Uh, it's roomy. Okay, well that yeah okay. Which I'm glad he went with commodious as as much uh, and uh, <laughs> okay. the the inmates are happy. <laughs> I love. Well, the in people who live in the no, house. No, for sure. We do, I think we, we like. At least now, we just associate inmates with, like, captivity in prison and stuff like that. So I just love it. These inmates are happy. <laughs> I love it. I, I want to be an author in the 1800s. Well, you could be. No. You'd have to learn to read first. <laughs> exactly. So, nope. Amherst is in Cumberland County, Nova Scotia, on the Isthmus of Chignecto, oh. the natural land bridge connecting Nova Scotia and North America. So Nova Scotia is a peninsula connected to North America. Very interesting. Amherst's website tells us that the town is a two-hour drive from Halifax, 90 minutes from Stanfield International Airport, an hour from Prince Edward Island, and 40 minutes from Moncton, New Brunswick. I'm assuming that's if you're driving the speed limit. Yeah, but it's it's kind of, it's right on the edge of mm. Nova Scotia toward New Brunswick, and then you can quickly get to PEI from there. Very cool. The area was called Nemchibugwek. Of course. Which means growing, which means going up, rising around. That name is a local Mi'kmaq name. Cool. And this referred to the land east of the Tantramar Marshes. That was higher than the marshes themselves. Some complex names there. Uh, Nemchibugwek. Yeah. I, I don't know how I would have pronounced it. Nemchibakawik. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It was settled by French Acadians in 1672. And it was renamed from that native name to Les Planches which translate roughly to the boards, and I don't know why they would. Hmm. It could be, uh, like, flatland or whatever. Uh, interesting fact. My dad, uh, speaking of French Acadians, my dad played the accordion most of his life. Well, there you go. Oh, oh wait a minute. Is that different than Acadians? Acadians are not accordions. Oh, well, mm, it's close. Oh, boy. 
1878. Uh, <laughs> oh, boy. But anyway, eventually, after a bit of a war between the French and the British, mm-hmm. Amherst was named after the leader of that particular war, Lord Amherst. Oh. So there you go. No, I, I in the 1700s. Yeah, I was going to say that. So in 1878... Amherst had grown to a town of around three thousand people. Today, oh, okay. it's around nine thousand. So yeah. it has oh, it hasn't hasn't increased not, substantially. Not yeah. substantially. Well, tripled o- over like a hundred years. Amherst also sits near the top of the Bay of Fundy and boasts some of the world's largest, highest tides. Oh, and it's quite a sight to see. Uh, something you should check out if you're ever in Atlantic Canada. I do want to check out uh, Atlantic Canada. The story of the haunting goes that one evening, as Esther and her sister Jane were bedding down for the night, Esther leapt up screaming that there was a mouse under the mattress. She'd felt something moving and touching her. Yikes. The girls tore the bed apart looking for the mouse, but found nothing. Well, it could have been a mouse. It could could have been. I would imagine uh, houses weren't built as... uh, Uh, sealed as they are now. (laughs) Mices can get in. There you go. The next night, again, just as the girls were laying down to bed, Esther leapt up screaming the same thing. She was certain something was moving under the mattress. Looking under the bed, the girls saw a small cardboard box that had been filled with patchwork for a quilt, and it was moving on its own. Oh, I legit just got chills. When the box stopped moving, the girls grabbed it, looked through it, but nothing was there. (sighs) Fearful, they put the box in the middle of the room and backed up to watch. The box leapt up about a foot off the ground and came to rest on its side. Boxes do that, right? No box that I've known. Oh, okay. Uh, Yeah, that's scary. So the girls were terrified, of course, but they wanted to see if it would happen again. Yeah. So they returned the box to the middle of the floor and backed up again. And got their video camera ready? No, because oh. it was 1878. Yeah, semantics. It jumped into the air again, falling over again onto its side. Yikes. The girls began screaming, and Daniel, their brother-in-law, who'd been awaking during the commotion, entered to see what all the fuss was about. Hmm. Yeah. The box lay where it had last landed, and the girls explained what they'd seen. Daniel was angry. At having been awakened, he admonished the girls for making noise and for lying to him. He shoved the box back under the bed, telling the girls to go to sleep and be quiet as he shut the door behind him. Like, I can't even be mad at Daniel because, like, uh, we've all been there when you're, like, sound asleep and you've got to jump awake to do something and then you're like, really? Oh, God damn it, guys. So, like, I'm not, I can't even be mad. The next morning at breakfast, the girls insisted the box had been moving on a, on its own. Of course, no one believed them. Yeah, people are going to be skeptical for sure. Esther, however, had been sullen and was crying herself to sleep for a few days prior to the first night's odd events. Oh, really? Four nights passed, Esther had a falling out with a local bad boy shoemaker that she'd been smitten with, Bob McNeil. Oh, those bad boy shoemakers. Bob had been around the teed home every day for quite some time, courting Esther. Mm. Her family didn't like Bob. He was known to be, quote, wild and too fast for young Esther, but she ignored them. I wonder what too fast refers to. Oh. Like, is he just really good at running? No. Maybe. Yeah, it's a, a little too, uh... Yeah. Yeah. Bob had come to pick up Esther that evening in his carriage for a jaunt around Amherst. 
He dropped her off after 10 p.m. that evening and rode off quickly without walking her to the door, and he said not a word. Oh. Esther had been down in the dumps ever since, and when she was asked about what happened, she told her family that, simply, she and Bob had quarreled, and Bob had not come to the house since. Oh, okay. So she was sad. So, yeah. Esther said she thought she'd become an old maid, and no one would want her now. Esther, that's not true. Paranormal events sometimes begin occurring around people who are suffering emotionally mm -hmm. and mentally. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that. The night after the box event, things got weirder. Just after Esther had gone to bed, the whole house was wakened by her howling. My God, what can be the matter with me? Wake up, Jane, wake up. I'm dying, I'm dying, dying. Oh, wow, okay. Esther had leapt out of bed and was standing trembling in the middle of the room, a horrified look on her face. Esther's long hair was standing straight up, as though she'd been touching an electrostatic generator at a science fair, but it had not been invented yet. Oh, wow. Okay, this is kind of scary. Her eyes bulged from their sockets and her face was redder than Jane had ever seen before. Bizarre. Okay, yeah. Daniel and Olive Teed entered the room to see what all the yelling was about. Esther began to pale and looked as though she might faint. Hmm. Daniel helped her back to bed, but as soon as they got there, she jumped up again, screaming that she thought she was going to burst. That is weird. She said she was swelling up, and she did look swollen, fevered, and pale. She continued swelling and grinding her teeth in agony as her family looked on, until suddenly three loud claps of what could be best described as thunder came from under the bed. What? And so the Daniel and, and Olive were there for this? Yeah. Okay. Esther went from looking like a swollen monstrosity back to herself in moments. She collapsed herself back onto the bed. Whew, that's intense. The attacks carried on over the ensuing weeks, and rumors spread about what was happening at 6 Princess Street. Hmm. As one doctor was tending to Esther during a particularly brutal attack, the words... Esther Cox, you are mine to kill, appeared in large scrawled letters on the wall at the head of her bed. Holy shit. And this is with the doctor there. Yeah, like so they weren't there and then they appeared? Well, he... This is the thing about this. There's all kinds of people signed off said, I saw this. Holy shit. Yeah. As the doctor was leaving for the night, a piece of plaster flew from the wall, almost hitting him in the head. I'm totally getting, like, uh, the conjuring feels. Mm-hmm. Wow. The weird events went on for weeks. Some days there was nothing. And then for days on end, the bizarre things happened in the home. Wow. Esther would be slapped, pinched, and scratched by unseen things. Pins would fly from nowhere, sticking into Esther's skin. Oh, poor Esther. Like this thing. Even the local minister, Reverend Temple, witnessed the strange goings-on in the Teed Cottage. Hmm. Potatoes flew across the room. Water in a pail near Esther would suddenly come to a boil. Wow. Esther would often be spasming violently on the bed as these things occurred. Poor dear. Ah, yeah. One night, Esther began to hear voices. One told her that it was going to set fire to the house and torment Esther until she died. Lit matches somehow appeared in the room and small fires had to be tamped out. After that, lit matches would appear intermittently in the house, nearly setting fire to the place numerous times. All who witnessed these things said that it was not Esther herself doing these. That is crazy. 
So there are everybody is around her is supporting what's happening. Yes. Yeah. Esther was even sent away for a time to a home in nearby St. John, New Brunswick, with the hope that removing her from the Teed home would make the attack stop. Yeah, I get that. They didn't. Shit. Fires were set, and things flew about that St. John home as well. Eventually, Esther was sent back to Amherst. It's like, yeah, get this. <laughs> yeah, no, we're good. You can clearly you... possessed by something out of here. Yeah, you can have her back. We're good. Yeah. Esther claimed to be tortured by a number of spirits led by one angry ghost named Bob. It's a bit of a, uh, Bob is a bit of a anticlimactic uh, yeah. name. These ghosts were the things that were responsible for what was going on. Yeah. And it's interesting that Bob is her ex-boyfriend's name oh, as well. Oh, yes, that is interesting. A system of knocking, like two for yes and one for no, mm -hmm. was set up for the doctors and Hubble, the author, yep. to communicate with the spirits. And sometimes they spoke directly through Esther. Oh, creepy. Esther's attacks had been observed by doctors, clergy, and other respected Amherst citizens and were being reported widely in the newspapers. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I, I definitely put more credence behind it when, when there's a lot of witnesses mm -hmm. and observers. Uh, this is how Hubble... The actor and author came to hear of Esther's story, and then he came to live with the Teeds to cover this, cover Esther's case firsthand. Yeah, you said six weeks, right, earlier? Something like that? Yeah. Yeah, so a good chunk of time he was there. Yeah. Uh, from Hubble's book, The Haunted House, A True Ghost Story, here's one interaction that the author had with Esther's ghosts by way of a seance in the Teed home. Oh, sweet a seance. During the afternoon, while in the parlor, the author made the acquaintance of all the ghosts. Bob Nickel, the chief ghost, Maggie Fisher, another ghost almost as bad as Bob, Peter Cox, a quiet old fellow, of very little use as a ghost, because he never tries to break chairs, etc. Mary Fisher, who says she's Maggie's sister, Jane Nickel, and Eliza McNeil. The last three are no good as ghosts as all they do is stalk about the house and occasionally upset something. As there are only six ghosts, all told, and they are all present, the author asked them numerous questions, all of which were answered by loud knocks on the floor or on the wall, just as he requested, all seeming anxious to converse. The first question the author asked was, Have you all lived on Earth? And the answer, yes. Question, have you seen God? No. Are you in heaven? No. Are you in hell? Yes. Have you seen the devil? And a very loud, yes. Many other questions were answered, but the answers are not worth repeating. At the conclusion of the interview, one of the ghosts threw the author's bottle of ink from the table to the floor, spilling the contents on the carpet. End quote. Man, this Hubble is so... I like, he's got this rating system for ghosts. Yeah. The final the, the boy, Peter Cox is and he's not very much of a ghost. <laughs> they're, they're a shitty ghost unless they <laughs> it's actually... Like, it's like he's got ghost standards. 
Yeah. Well, as, as he you claimed should, to really. be a paranormal investigator, I yeah. think. And actor and yeah. author I, and doctor and a whole bunch of other things. He was a showman. Yeah. And yeah. a bit of a scumbag. Oh, he really? took Esther out to the surrounding communities, requiring people to pay to see what was going on with her. Oh, okay. Sometimes oh. things would fly around as Esther would have an attack. Other times nothing happened at all, but still people paid to see the poor tortured girl in her odd state. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not cool with that. On one of the outings, three large iron spikes were placed in Esther's lap as she was in the throes of swelling and convulsing. Jeez. The spikes heated up so much they could not be picked up with bare hands. So aside from the the swelling, it almost sounds like she's got epilepsy or something in, in some regards. Well, there's some there's something definitely going on yeah, with her. Yeah, But hey, let's exploit it and take her around and charge people to, to see her. Exactly. After months of torture at the hands of unseen entities, Esther fell into a trance one night. She began to talk about Bob McNeil and what had happened to her the night they last saw each other. Okay. She said that she and Bob had not ridden far from the teed home when he pulled the buggy off the main road into a more secluded, heavily wooded spot. Oh boy. Okay. He told Esther he wanted her to go into the woods with him. Oh, shit. Esther knew what Bob wanted, so she said she'd rather stay in the carriage and asked to be taken back to town. Bob became angry jumped out of the buggy and pulled a pistol from his coat. Oh, shit. He pointed the gun at Esther and told her to come into the woods or he would shoot her. Wow. Esther claimed she held on to her honor, refusing Bob, and when another carriage approached, Bob gave up frustrated. Holy cow. Bob then drove Esther home in the pouring rain, refusing to put up the top out of spite for having been rebuffed. Well, what a piece of shit this guy is. Uh, yeah. But they'd been gone for hours. What yeah, okay. what really happened? Did Bob actually carry through and rape young Esther at gunpoint? This might have been a traumatic enough event to put Esther in the state that made her vulnerable to the psychic attack she was under. Yeah, my, my gut tells me uh, something much more happened than just uh, a threat. I mean, you look and at a lot of the, people believe that. Yeah, you got to look at the time that, that mm -hmm. elapsed and... Uh, how, and it's fa so fascinating how, like, right after that is when... This all started. Yeah. Yep. When Esther came out of the trance, however, she denied any knowledge of what she'd said, going back to the old claim that she and Bob had simply had a falling out. Hmm. She perhaps just didn't want to admit it to herself. Well, we got to look at the time, too. Yeah. Like, even, it's is 2019, and it's still difficult for women, and so you go back to the 1880s, and... Uh, be almost impossible, I think, to want to come forward with info. So, oh, you know, for sure. Yeah, poor girl. One day, Esther was undergoing a particularly harsh attack of pins flying at her and sticking into her skin, as well as loud banging noises. She ran from the teed cottage to a nearby church where churchgoers heard the banging following her. Oh, okay. Esther ended up in a neighbor's barn where phantom matches caught the hay on fire, burning the barn to the ground. Oh, wow. Esther was charged with arson and sentenced to four months in jail. She was released after serving only a month. Nothing of note happened in the prison. Interesting, okay. Shortly after her release, Esther met her first husband, and they soon married. After that, the attack stopped for good. Hmm. So, I mean, you could uh, say that it was just due to life turning around uh, for the positive. Yep. And that... Uh, 
is why the spirits stopped. Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly. Uh, it's about a bit of tuning, I think. Like yeah. Spiritual yeah. tuning somehow. Yeah, yeah. Or it could also be that it was, the skeptic would say that it was just uh, not necessary for her to want that attention anymore. So but, there you go. Uh, but I'm going to go with the, uh, it was tuning. There you go. Esther had a son with her first husband and another boy with her second. Esther died at 52 years old at Brockton, Massachusetts, where she lived with her second husband in 1912. Oh, that was pretty young. I mean, that's not far off from us. Yeah, she was 52, Jeez, yeah, two wow. years older than I am right now. Wow. After the break, you'll hear my interview with par- paranormal investigator Morgan Knudsen as we talk about this case and a few others that she's dealt with that are pretty interesting. Oh, sweet. So stay tuned for that. And we'll be right back after the break. Uh, with me now from our Chorus Studios in Edmonton is Morgan Knudsen, paranormal lecturer, presenter, and author. She's also an award-winning founder of Entity Seeker Paranormal Research and Teachings. Welcome, Morgan. Thank you. I'm just so happy to be here today this is a great opportunity. Thank you for having me. Yeah, uh, we're trying to lean toward more paranormal stories. Sometimes the crime stuff gets a little heavy. And so there's a lot of interesting, darker paranormal type stories here in Canada that my co-host and I would like to tell. And we just got finished with the, the Esther Cox story. So you are familiar with that story, yes? Very familiar with that story. And the great thing about the Esther Cox incident in, in and of itself was just the the amount of sort of byware that uh, that it represents, and I love the fact that there's there's so many aspects to this this case to to talk about because so much of it, even though it happened in the the 1870s, it's so relevant today. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, we have things flying out, flying around rooms, and and noises and. The actual haunting of an individual, I guess people in the know might call that a poltergeist encounter. Yeah, I think with her story and what what makes it to me is, is so multifaceted is the fact that you've got a situation where you've got a girl that has been under a lot of extreme stress. Like she ends up coming down with a very strange uh, illness that they can't quite place. Mm-hmm. They end up, uh, you know, they, they discover that sh- there was a possibility of sexual assault um, from a very creepy individual. Yeah. So you've got a stack of stressors that happen, and then all of a sudden you've got this this you know crazy activity. And there's there's a couple of a couple of theories that I've got about why that happened. Um, but then you've got you know on the other side of it, the people of course that you know told her she was crazy or she was faking it or mm-hmm. uh, and whatever. So there's it's yeah it's very interesting. And she did end up doing time in in jail for burning down a barn. Yeah, so. she sure did. Yeah, which you know. <laughs> maybe maybe she didn't actually do that. It, it's one of those things. And a lot of people believe that's why she got out of jail so early is because public sentiment was that she didn't actually do it. It was something else. Yeah, and I think, I think too, the one aspect of, of that case that really needs to be, to be looked at and that I find is one of the most relevant pieces of it today is, um, you know, you had this, this strange kind of actor fellow uh, get a hold of her, and you know he was sort of an amateur paranormal investigator, and mm. you know very much a hobbyist. But um, the the exploitation that went on there as well, knowing that she possibly had some mental illness and things like that going on, and you know he, the fact that he kind of grabbed onto her to make a buck um, yeah. is one of the reasons I think why so many people like her don't come forward with these with these cases. Yeah, I mean he he took her on the road with him, so 
Uh, it's kind of disgusting. It's it's I mean, it's a sideshow act. Yeah. You know, it was it's terrible. And and the fact that you know he puts his book out, the book does really well, and she doesn't even get a dime of it. It's pretty brutal. Yeah, I mean the, the book is in the public domain now, so yeah, it's it's easy to find. It's it's pretty interesting. Uh, an interesting book. It's only forty four pages for anybody who wants to read it. It's it's easy to. It's an easy go. One thing I wanted to ask you about it is what if any. Part. I, I know you said you had a few theories on what went on there. Yeah. And uh, my the one that really stood out to me is four days before all this started is she had that encounter with this creepy individual yeah. that you say. We've heard this before. This is kind of the thing maybe that is the catalyst for this type of event. Would that be a thing? Yeah, I, I think I think that's a, that's a really good analysis of it. When we, we find these, these cases of uh, specifically negative hauntings, we always usually find a stressor with the client. Mm-hmm. And um, that's one thing that a lot of people tend to overlook is the fact that there's oftentimes some sort of trauma or catalyst that, that sort of sets them into that, that negative range of emotions. And that negative range of emotions ends up attracting all sorts of crazy stuff. And it's, it's always, I always like to say the universe is kind of like a mirror and we kind of get back where we are, not who we are, but where we are emotionally. And, you know, the, the clients that I, that I end up dealing with and whatnot that are having these, these major problems with, with negative entities, you know, that's always a factor in there. And they might not even be aware of it all the time, but there's definitely a, a connection emotionally to the stuff that people are receiving mm-hmm. and the the energy and whatnot and where they are emotionally. It's very interesting. So in your opinion, this this is definitely aligns with uh, this type of case is the kind of thing that you might deal with today. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And and the the criticism, too, that, you know, that comes with it. And I know, she, like, you know, you get a, a girl like that uh, where they begin to, to sort of feed into the phenomenon because it's really hard to get your attention off of that kind of thing once it starts happening. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's one of the things that we've got to do with our clients is to say, you know what, it, this is hard as this is, you, we've got to get you focused on something that you're passionate about so that you're not feeding into the, you know, the uh, sort of an, a, a mental loop um, you know, because when something like this happens, you want to call your friends and you want to kind of goose it up. Right. And it's like, you can't do that. Yeah. So is, is this the kind of thing that's in your book, teaching the living from heartbreak to healing in a haunted home? It is. Yeah. This is exactly what we talk about. And when I, when I'm discussing some of the cases in there, um, that's a common pattern that we end up seeing is just the fact that these, you know, getting ourselves to this next emotional state that a better emotional state is ultimately what ends up being the, the final solution to a lot of this stuff. But, you know, people want an external solution and it's, that's just not possible. It's kind of like paranormal psychology. A little bit. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it's the, the recognizing of the fact that we are not apart from what we are experiencing. Mm-hmm. And that's where people, I think, get, they get kind of screwed up. Like if you've got a bad job, you turn around and you, you know, you complain to your friends and your friends will be like, well, you know, Part of this is, is you, you could go and quit and get another job and stop complaining about it. And there's, there's always sort of that part ownership. But with, you know, with hauntings, it's funny because immediately people think everything's just happening to you. Mm-hmm. And that's just not true. Interesting. So it is happening with you? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where we have to understand our relationship and how it's either provoking or either uh, just, you know, antagonizing the environment. It, it's, it always takes two to tango. I got you. You know, and it, we have to understand that some of our actions are actually, in some cases, especially in, in negative entity cases, 
are actually perpetuating the phenomenon. And it's not about blame because blame implies fault right. because people don't, I mean, they don't know, but you know, they, you, we've got to take a step back with them. We've got to look at what's going on in the home and we guarantee every time that there is some, there's some correlation. So what are you doing, thinking, saying that may uh, attract this type of energy? Exactly. Yeah. And there's, there's always a correlation. And the Esther Cox story is such a great example of that because here we can trace, we can start to trace it back to this, this trauma. And, you know, she's got, they mentioned she has an anxiety disorder and mm-hmm. there's a bunch of other things. And it's like, okay, well, if you think of your emotions, almost like a radio dial, right. And you've got, you know, the sort of the low stuff, maybe depression and grief and all the way up to maybe frustration on one end. And then you've got the positive stuff, the really happy, joyful stuff on the other end. You can't tune in to depressed and upset and expect to get a happy frequency where all this really fun, positive paranormal activity starts to happen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've got to be able to, to, to recognize the fact that you've got to tune your station. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with that. I believe I'm a spiritual person myself. I don't consider myself a religious person, but I believe I have kind of tuned into uh something Mm -hmm. that seems to be leading me in a certain direction, i.e. this talk and and other things like that. I just seem to be being drawn toward all this stuff that I find super fascinating and really interesting and it kind of makes my soul sing. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And it does for me too because I love cases that you can begin to empower people with. And when you start to realize that you've got control over what you're receiving – then it becomes so much fun. You know, that's when you get people that are, are uh, you know, experiencing their, the loved ones who, they, you know, who have passed away or, you know, fun encounters that mm-hmm. make you laugh. And I mean, that's what this is all about. Yeah, for sure. That's what, that's the type of paranormal experience I want to have. <laughs> oh, and that's what makes life good. You know, when you can, when you really get that relationship going with non-physical, man, it takes the fear out of death. It takes the fear out of, out of, you know, uh, losing people. It it gives you freedom. It's fantastic. So you have some family history in paranormal and psychical research. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So my great-great-grandfather uh, was Albert Durant Watson, and uh, he was from uh, Ontario. And he was a very noted physician, very famous physician there. His house is a, uh, a historical landmark there now. But he founded the first paranormal association in Canada, and he was uh, amazing guy. He started extremely skeptical mm-hmm. and he just thought, no, no, this, this is all crazy until he, he began to have these, these sittings with a fellow by the name of Louis Benjamin and the amazing stuff that started to turn out of those. And he started to transcribe these events and he published two books on the subject because he thought, you know what, I'm just, I'm going to put it out there. This is what I experienced. You know, you guys weigh in for yourselves. But what was so great about that was that the, the, the information that he brought brought to light was just so incredibly inspiring, and he the guy was an amazing poet and whatever as well. So his his way of writing is very very interesting, but amazing guy. So did you learn about him early on in life, and just sort of this is where you picked up this interest? Or? Okay, so here's where it gets weird. Okay, <laughs> so I didn't know about A.D. Watson until about six years after Entity Seeker was founded. What? I kid you not. Wow. I had no idea. And then yeah, and because my my family history, I mean most most of the people have just no idea what's going on. <laughs> they have no idea what's going on in my family. Nobody's done any research or whatever. And then you know I found a couple of family members that said, oh yeah, hey by the way. And I was like, how could you not have given me this information like six yeah. years ago? Wow. 
Yeah, isn't that nuts? It's crazy. That's uh, it, it's like it was in your genes. I think I think you know we we really have callings to things, and and mm-hmm. you know you go you go for the things that bring you the most joy and the most passion, and and this is one of those things that always has. It's just fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I went through uh, some some bouts of real major depression in my life, mm-hmm. and uh, interestingly, once I started to recover from them and the clouds had parted, I realized it was about me not actually pursuing what I what I truly wanted to. I was pursuing what I thought I had to. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I totally get that. And I think I think what people don't realize, too, is that when we're not doing those things or when we're not per, pursuing, you know, our, our calling or our dreams or anything like that, if we've got an open wound somewhere, I guarantee you you're bleeding. Yeah. You're bleeding out from somewhere. Mm-hmm. And people think that, you know, you can just you know, brush it off and, and forget about it. But at the end of the day, you really, really can't. I mean, it's the difference between you know, joyful, positive experience yeah. and just trying to stuff yourself into a box. For sure. You need some first aid. And, and this is, this sounds like what, what you're trying to do is and give sometimes full surgery, yeah. you know, yeah. sometimes full blown surgery. Yeah. That's fascinating. I want to talk a bit about, uh, the show that is, uh, it will have premiered yep. on March 24th, 2019. And it's called Paranormal 911. And people can find that here in Canada on the Travel and Escape channel. At T&E at 8 Eastern. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit about, I've watched the first episode. So Blue Ant sent me a, a, a link to watch the first episode. And it was it was fascinating. Yeah. I was a security guard myself. So the, the middle story of the guy who's telling uh, the security guard telling right? the story really stood out to me. <laughs> but tell me a little bit more about that show and what it's about, what the whole premise is, and, uh, and what you've learned maybe. I'm so excited about this show because it is, taking a very journalistic approach to these cases, which I, I'm fully behind because I think that's something that the, a lot of these, these paranormal television shows have really gotten away from. And our goal is to be able to support these first responders and being able to come forward and tell their story. And it's such a taboo thing in uh, the medical field because you end up getting this sort of reputation of, uh, you know, okay, maybe this person's crazy, uh, they've got mental illness, you know, whatever, and they they fear coming forward. Mm-hmm. So what, what's been so great for me is to be able to take these cases and know that none of these people have a dog in the fight. Right. They just don't have a dog in the fight. They get a call from the dispatcher, go to this place, help this person. That's all they get. That's all they know. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not being set up in any way. They don't go in with preconceived notions. So when they experience something, their first priority is not to experience something, it's to help this, this patient. Yeah. So that to me has been the most significant thing. And, it, you know, the, the people that, I, that we've dealt with have just been incredibly credible. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, those, like I say, those first, first three people that I watched were, were very, very interesting. And they had a lot of indicators of veracity in the way they spoke and, and that kind of thing. It was super interesting. Yeah, and and they just, you know, having the courage to be able to come out and and to talk about this stuff. Like, for example, you know, the security guard that you were mentioning, um, you know, being able to step forward and say, yeah, that happened, you know, and sometimes happened more than once, Mm -hmm. you know, is it's a it's a big risk for them. And and I know myself and the producers and, you know, the other people on the show, I mean, we definitely we we don't take it lightly. Yeah. Um, How many episodes have you folks completed? Uh, How many can we look forward to? Oh, God. Well, we've. The, the, we've done the first season. Okay. Um, so it's, there's, there's plenty coming up and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, hopefully there'll, there'll be a season two as well. So I'm, uh, 
yeah, we just, we're, we're so excited about it. And you've worked on uh, another sort of similar show, Haunted Hospitals as yeah. well. Now here's where our paths are going to kind of intersect in a way. Um, I was a security officer at the Vancouver General Hospital for uh, a, a little bit of time. I think it was about two years. And uh, Vancouver Hospital is well known for its, uh, the burn ghost. And there used to be what was called the nurse's residence. It was an 11-story building that was well known for its paranormal stuff that would happen in there. I, for example, one of one of one night I was uh, doing my route, and I'm I have to do every floor, walk through every floor, and it's dark. It was an abandoned building at the time. It's now gone. But at the top was a library, and I went into the library and I looked around, and as I'm going out, I make sure the lights are off and I lock the door. My second round, I come back, the lights are on. Nobody else but me has the keys for this building. There is no way that anybody could have gotten in there to turn the lights on, but here the lights are on. Then walking back down through, I had this strange situation where on a couple of floors, the elevator would meet me at the on on the particular floor and, yeah. the, and the door would open as I was walking by and there's no one in there and the the second time it happened I like checked to see is is somebody playing a game with me or something like that and nobody there I went back to uh, the guard shack and we had a conversation and other guards said oh yeah we've had experiences like that too in that particular building and it was uh it was a little creepy I mean I've been around a lot of uh, old abandoned hospitals I worked in the film industry so mm-hmm. inside Riverview and uh, also one of my routes when I was a mobile security officer was the old uh, mental institution known as Woodlands here in, in uh, New Westminster. And that was quite a storied, storied place with some <laughs> weird events. But I didn't experience anything there. Uh, but just that idea that, you know, something's always in the back of your mind. There's a lot of things that happen in a hospital, uh, both good and bad, that may attract that kind of attention is that kind of thing make sense to you? Oh, absolutely it does. Well, and when what you're describing is is not uncommon. You know, people think that that this stuff doesn't happen very much, but the the facts actually state the opposite where you know, a, a humongous chunk of the population, more than not, around 75% have had some sort of paranormal experience. So I think, you know, people people think this is some sort of rare occurrence, but it really is not. Like the the name paranormal is a little bit misleading because it translates into beyond normal, and it's it's actually the opposite. So you know this stuff happens quite a bit, and and you know in the case like the uh, the uh, security security guard that you were mentioning uh, in in paranormal nine one one stuff like that, which is a phenomenon, I, I think is uh, my guess is it's probably residual energy, and I say I guess just because it's I wasn't there to, to do a deep dive into the case, but you know, you get a, a situation like that where there's been impactful moments in a venue, and in this case, there was there had been a huge flood in that area. There was a, a history of a mass loss of life, mm. and you'll get a repetitive phenomenon that will will start up under the right conditions, and it doesn't even necessarily mean that there's an intelligence there. It's just a replaying of events, and there's a there's a bunch of conjecture, I guess, about why this happens, but they're leaning to the idea that um, high levels of electromagnetic activity may actually be one of the precursors to for this stuff to actually almost be recorded into the environment like like memory. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's really interesting stuff. So it's not even this phenomenon not not even is necessarily an intelligent entity walking around, but um, you know sometimes the environment's playing a number on you. 
Yeah, that's, it's so fascinating. Uh, that idea of something being recorded. Another guy I was working with at the Vancouver Hospital, he had an experience with, he saw an entity in the tunnels underneath the hospital. And there's tunnels interconnecting all the different buildings. So patients uh, and the public don't have to see awful things. Uh, you know, they will sure. take things that they don't want the public to see down through the tunnels. And it's easy to connect all the buildings that way. This young man saw an entity walking toward him in the tunnel near where the burn unit had been. And there's a there's a, a well-known story about uh, the ghost of the burn unit near Heather Pavilion, which is the oldest building in the on the campus. And this guy saw somebody coming toward him that was wearing not like he looked like his clothing was from another era kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And being a security guard, he's, you know, asking this gentleman as he's walking toward him, hi, uh, what can I do for you? What are you doing here? And this thing just literally walked right through him. Yeah. It just as though he wasn't there and didn't interact with him. And he came back to the guard shack where again, you know, having lunch and he was, he was pale and uh, he couldn't quite articulate what had happened to him. It took some doing to get it out of him. And he told us what had happened. And immediately after getting it all out, he just gave, you know, his utility belt and said, I quit. I'm not coming back here. He was just so terrified of what had happened yeah, to him it's, that it's night. Yeah, it's scary. And, and that's such a great example of residual energy. You know, when you've got a, an image that you can't interact with, you can't get his attention. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's a classic example of it. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. I'm, I'm really glad that you can talk to me about it because I've over the years wondered what, what it is and, and done some reading and, and that kind of thing about it. And and sounds like your belief is pretty much what I've I've come to. It, it had to be something left over. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because what, probably one of the best cases of residual energy is uh, the Gettysburg Battlefield, hmm. and uh, it it it's so prevalent there that there's not many guests that go and visit that don't actually hear or see something, whether it be guns firing or uh, soldiers marching or anything like that. And what they've discovered relatively recently is the fact that they the the geological makeup of the land itself uh, is there's a quartz bed that's sitting underneath of it. And mm. quartz, of course, you know, can re retain a magnetic charge. Mm -hmm. And they're realizing that these fluctuations and these sort of strange levels of electromagnetics may have du a direct relation to the fact that people are, are, are seeing this stuff. And they're, so right now they're trying to figure out how exactly that, you know, that pieces together, but, and why some areas will have it and some, and some others won't. But uh, I think in the next number of years we're gonna we're gonna have an answer to that. Interesting. That's pretty yeah, neat. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating. One thing I wanted to to ask you is, uh, do you have any cases that have really stuck with you? Something that maybe you haven't been able to explain, or uh, something that's that's you know keeps coming up. I I think probably one of the most interesting cases was actually uh, it was. I've seen a sort of a repeat of this on both haunted hospitals and paranormal 911, and I had a personal experience with it, which is which is kind of neat. So we began in in haunted hospitals with uh, this uh, a story about uh, what they call the angel of death, mm. and it it struck me when I first got the case. I thought oh, it seems very uh, almost urban legend like, and I started to do a deep dive on it. And basically, what had happened in haunted hospitals was. Um, a very, very credible, uh, very credible, very experienced nurse, uh, RN, had come forward talking about this sort of cloaked figure uh, who was who she observed caring for her aunt who was who was passing away. 
Mm. and it scared her. And she saw this thing more than once. Mm. And she had this strange encounter with it. And I thought, ah, like the cloaked figure thing, it just seems, you know, it seems odd. Mm -hmm. But then when I started to do this deep dive into it, I realized that this is a phenomenon that's reported across all cultures. Um, it's reported in, in various different, uh, various different arenas, um, whether it be medical field or, or personal experience. And then we ran into a similar case again on Paranormal 911 from uh, a couple of uh, 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 ambulance workers, mm. EMTs. And I thought, this is, this is very interesting. Now, when years ago, I founded Entity Seeker with uh, one of my best friends, Stephanie Wirtz, and she, unfortunately, she passed away. Mm. Um, but I had a, an interesting experience the one night um, where I was at home alone, had, you know, sitting around my living room, wasn't long after she had passed away, and somebody rang my doorbell. Mm. And I was like, okay, you know, got up, looked out the peephole, and there was somebody standing on my doorstep in a black cloak. Mm. And I thought, oh, weird, you know, I didn't, perfectly solid, I didn't think anything of it. Right. Um, but I went around to look out my window just to check to see if I could tell who it was, and they were gone. Whoa. And... There was no way, because of course I go into investigator brain, yeah. trying to like, you know, figure out who this was. And there was just no way that anybody could have left my step and left my front gate in, in the time period it took me to just peek out the window. And when we started to do a look into what this phenomenon is, what people are reporting is that not only does it, whoever this is, come to care for a person who is making their transition, but people often see it sticking around and caring for the loved ones afterwards. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, and it was it fascinated me because, as I say, my my initial take on it was, you know, this sounds very almost Grim Reaper like. Yeah. But uh, it seems to be a phenomenon that's reported a lot, and mm. it's just I don't know, it's really cool. More psychopomp like rather than. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really really intriguing, and I had I had no idea what to make of my experience because it happened before I learned about you know any of these cases on. Uh, the, before the show started. So it was, it was really interesting. Um, is there anything that any other experiences that you've had, uh, maybe a Canadian case that stuck out to you other than the obvious, the Amherst mystery? The Amherst mystery. Yeah. yeah. No kidding. <laughs> oh, well, you know, we've had, we've had so much occur, like not only just, just in Edmonton, but just watching, um, you know, the cases throughout the show. And I think one of the ones that stuck out to me, uh, was it actually happened in, uh, 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 Peace River. Mm-hmm. And it was a woman who, she ended up having a, a heart attack and dispatch got this phone call um, that, you know, got to send some people in. And of course they, they send in the EMTs and, uh, and usually what follows is of course, you know, police or, or whatnot as well. Um, but when they got there, uh, they walk into the, this, this living room, it looked like nobody was home and they run into this, this older gentleman that's sitting in the living room and he was very stone faced. Mm-hmm. and they were a little bit weirded out, and he was like, you know, you need to go upstairs, my wife's in trouble. So up they go, and whatever, and yeah, lo and behold, she's sitting there, and she's white as a ghost, like she looks like she's having a, a you know, heart failure. Yeah. And so they're working on her and whatnot, and they thought, ah, oh, let's go down and ask the husband a couple more questions. Uh, you know, sh- uh, the partner goes down to, to look for him, and he's not there. Mm. When the other responders get there, um, they're met, this guy has gone outside and he's talking, he had talked with them and said, yeah, EMTs are here, you know, go upstairs, whatnot. So they're waiting. And as the, the, uh, the EMTs are with, with the patient, she finally gets it out to them that her husband died. 
Oh wow! Not there, and yeah, yeah. and so it, by the end of it, though, there was there was about four witnesses. Yeah, to, you know, to see this guy, and like it, it was just phenomenal. So I mean, it's cases like that where I mean, man, if you think you're by yourself, yeah. let me tell you, you're you're not. So he was there to take care of her. Absolutely. Yeah, that's kind of that's a cool story. That's amazing. We're never alone, you know. Um, there are skeptics. Uh, oh, yeah. My co-host is one. He's not here with me, so he I can't speak for him, but he likes to, we talk about psychics on the show sometimes, mm-hmm. helping police officers, and he likes to poo-poo that. Uh, do you have any message uh, for somebody who's maybe a little skeptical and, and, and not quite open-minded when it comes to this kind of thing? Yeah, I think, uh, I, what I find is that the majority of skeptics are, quite frankly, uneducated about the subject. Um, they, they're pulling a lot of their information from, you know, some of the, the, the shows or media that has, you know, been, you know, formulating and, and structured entertainment shows rather than, uh, uh, information like, uh, from the papers and universities. I think people don't realize that it's the best universities in the world that have a beat on this stuff. Yeah. You know, Princeton and Northampton and the University of Edinburgh and all these different you know, all these different locations, the best universities in the world have parapsychology labs. Yeah, they're studying. Absolutely. And where they are now compared to, you know, even, geez, even 10 years ago is, is phenomenal. So my, my encouragement to anybody who's skeptical is to not delve into the sort of the entertainment side of it, but start like listening to people, um, listening to their encounters and picking up the, the, papers to actually do the, the genuine research that these amazing labs are doing. Because, I mean, the, the evidence is absolutely overwhelming. Oh, yeah, for sure. If you could investigate any case, anything, you know, money's not an issue, something that you would really love to, to like you say, do a deep dive on. Oh, my gosh. I, I think... I think I would have to sort of go back in time to about the 1970s, actually. <laughs> okay. If I could do, yeah, if I could do it, and that would be the Enfield case. Oh, interesting, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That was a phenomenal, and it was, it was a little frustrating with the, the, the second Conjuring movie because they, they wanted to use that case, but they, they very much minimized the role of the Society of Psychical Research in that and, uh, and the, the investigation that sort of preceded it. But the, uh, the transcripts of people like Morris Gross and... Uh, Dr. John Beloff talking with this this entity in the in the, the house. Uh, just the recordings are phenomenal, and I, so I think I would I would rewind time a little bit, and that's where I'd end up. So if somebody wanted to hear those recordings, where can we go? You can actually go on YouTube. Oh, wow. um, YouTube has them, yeah, and there's there's quite a bit of information out there. Um, and uh, Morris Gross did an amazing job of uh, of documenting what had happened there and there's there's plenty of photos and there's and again it's very similar actually to the Amherst mystery because mm. people were really saying you know all the family because they were on welfare and they were like oh they're trying to make a buck or whatever but I mean it just about ruined this little girl's life yeah so interesting I'm just so fascinated by this I could talk to you all day oh I know it's so much fun it's so much fun <laughs> So much to cover. What are you working on next? What's what's up next for you? Oh gosh! So on Saturday, um, I am going back to film the second season of Haunted Hospitals. So awesome! I'm very yeah, I'm so excited about that. It's going to be great. And uh, yeah, just I do a lot of speaking. I do a lot of uh, uh, presentations. I'm a fire performer as well, so oh. I use fire to uh, to, to demonstrate uh, paradigm shifts and whatnot to people. So I use it to teach. And uh, it's it's really cool. So I do uh, 
presentations and shows and whatnot all over the place. So it'll be lots of those coming up. So if people want to find you, where can they do that? Best place to find me is entityseeker.ca. No plural, just entityseeker.ca. Best place to go. And I see you have a, like a Facebook page, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. All usual. of the above. Yeah. All at Entity Seeker. So they'll, they'll find me no problem. Awesome. I'm pretty available. So <laughs> That's fantastic. This has been so interesting. And thank you for coming on and humoring me oh, <laughs> and talking about our, our, our specific case, <laughs> the Amherst mystery. Is there anything else that you, you, you want to talk about just about that specific case before we go? Anything that maybe you, we didn't cover? I think with the Amherst case, I think the, the one of the big lessons is to be careful about who you're telling, who you're, who you're talking to about mm. some of this stuff. I think she is such an example of how things can go so wrong and how to you know, make sure that if you're bringing in an investigator or a team or anything like that, that you really do your homework about who these people are. Yeah. I mean, she's such a great example of just getting completely exploited and that's the one thing like it, people ask me all the time, what, you know, well, what do you look for in a team? And one of the f- first things I tell them is, you know, everybody, everybody that I work with that I bring in if for, for a case has a purpose there. Yeah. We, we work with nurses and psychologists and engineers and sound engineers and all of these different people. And it's not a bunch, it's not, they're not there because they're my buddies. And I, so I think in a, and, and, sh- and I have to say too, she's, she's such a good example of somebody who, may have had mental illness wrapped into this problem, mm-hmm. which is another reason why you can't bring in people that are just hobbyists. Yeah. Because if you've got somebody that's got mental health complications, and we've run into that plenty of times. Sure. Um, you know, it's, it's really rampant in this field. And, you know, you just, you, you can't be playing around with that stuff. So I, I think my biggest thing is, you know, in, in her case, if she had been my client, things would have been a lot different. Everything stopped once she got married. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, assuming, of course, assuming though that she wasn't, it wasn't a hoax. Um, but my thought is, is that I think once you are able to get into that better headspace, whatever it is, um, you know, and maybe for her, it was, it was finding, it was finding a bond, finding a relationship, feel somebody to make her feel loved and accepted, mm. you know, that's enough just to get you off of that frequency, right? And I mean, I don't definitely, I definitely recommend to people to make sure that, you know, they're doing their own self-work. It's not about, you know, going out and, you know, finding somebody to fix you. Right. But at the same time, you know, if, if that's what it was for her, then maybe it was just enough to kind of knock her up that emotional scale a little bit, you know, and she stopped being on the receiving end of, of you know, the, the crazy. So There you go. Yeah. Hey, that makes, that makes good sense to me, actually. So thank you so much, Morgan. And and you pronounce your last name Knudsen, correct? Knudsen, actually. Knudsen. Yeah, huh? it's Viking. It's oh, Norwegian, it's, so you it's, always pronounce the K. Oh, you, yeah, Knudsen. Know, Interesting. Hey? So Morgan Knudsen, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank it's you. Been, and you know what? We might call on you again if we have some other paranormal cases that we cover. Anytime. Fantastic. Thanks for your time, and uh, we'll see you on the flip side. <laughs> See you on the other side. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. And so that interview was pretty interesting. That was awesome. Yeah. And Morgan is very, very cool. And she and I both, uh, I think, agree that I don't think we're done talking. Good. Yeah. We. It's like we, we had to leave off in mid-conversation kind of thing. Oh, man. Because, 
you know, I had to tie tie yeah, things yeah. up. We could have gone on for. It felt like I could have talked to her for hours. She's so interesting. Those are good conversations when you have to force it to end. Yeah, yeah. It was just awesome. like, oh shit. I, yeah, I need to be cognizant of the of my time and of hers <laughs> yeah, too yeah. because I didn't want to keep her forever. But she's she's fantastic and and a good sport. So thank you, Morgan Knudsen. Thank yes. you, Morgan. Much appreciated. Before we go. We want to give some shout-outs to our new Patreon patrons. Yeah. And uh, this week's good eggs are Tiffany McCollett from Portland, Maine. Hey, Tiffany. Tiffany. Andrea Borgignol from Norfolk, Virginia. And I think that's like beef Borgignol. Yeah, good pronunciation, Mike. And thanks, Andrea. Yeah. Thank you. I probably pronounced it terribly. Maybe there's an Americanized pronunciation of it that I don't know. Well, what I'm learning... Organon? What I'm learning through all of the difficult names that we have... We're always wrong. We're always wrong. And they also... they they There was one, and it's like... It's pronounced Lexi. And it just looked like the most complex name. And so it's like... Yeah, I'm sure that this name is pronounced like... Borion. Something yeah. simple, but okay. Nikki Rowe from Winter Park, Florida. Hey, Nikki. Karina Delgadillo from San Diego, California. Oh, thank you. Beth Price. Yeah, yeah. She's from she's from Nepal. Did you know that? Oh, really? Yeah, Nepal. It, it, is she a Sherpa? She was not a Sherpa. Oh, interesting. She, she wasn't. She was, however, raised in the jungle by chimpanzees. There's no chimpanzees in Nepal. That see, but that's part of the problem. Is that's what people think, and oh. that's why they didn't look for her when she was abandoned, uh, nice living save. with chimpanzees. And when she was four, she just independently was like, "You know what? You guys have been great to me. I'm really digging you, chimps. Um, but I think I need to get back to civilization." And she hitchhiked at four to New York. From, from, ne you, from you, Nepal, yes. You hitchhike from Nepal to yes. New York. Yes. You know there's water. I do. I do. You can, hitchhike, you can hitchhike a boat, Mike. Yeah. You can do it. That's called stowing away. No, not if they they welcome you. If you just stand there with she's your thumb. She's four. This is why she's so amazing. Yeah, so okay. good, good on you, Beth, uh, and thank you. Now, someone just named Tina Lope. Oh, is that like a jackalope? Could be. Yeah. That's a tinalope. So, yeah, tinalope. That sounds like somebody from the wilds of Saskatchewan. The wilds of Saskatchewan. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, the the the, the, the tundra yes. uh, of Saskatchewan. Yeah. No, she is. That's exactly. Uh, I mean, like, there aren't very many tinalopes. So, yeah. uh, so clearly, it's it, we've got to be referring to the one in Saskatchewan who isn't a wheat farmer. Mm -hmm. That's not what she does. She, her job is, so w when they make the bales of wheat with their machines and such. She, with the thresher. The thresher. Exactly. It's a machine. machine and sure. Her job is to tie up the bundles, which is, people think that's not a very glamorous so job. So Tina Lope is a bundler. A bundle, uh, bundler. Yes, she's a bun hay bundler. And it's actually a very lucrative trade because most don't have the strength to lift so that they can tie at the same time. So, But she's, because she's a tinalope, she has that extra... She does. She's got the extra oomph. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. The so, strength of 10. The strength of 10 un-tinalopes. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So she's really cool. <laughs> Another Yumber Yarder, uh, Brittany Simpson from Hamilton, Ontario. Hey, 
Brittany. Thanks, Brittany. Carla Nowdill from Camden in Great Britain. Oh, Carla, I, I love Great Britain. I love Great Britain. Yeah. Even though I've never been there. I'm, I can't qualify it, but I love it. I have been there. Have you? Yes. Oh, it's yeah. great. Yeah. Great Britain is great. Once I go there, it certainly will become a Great Britain. <laughs> great Scott. I uh, uh, Just like the Chuck Norris joke, uh, uh, <sighs> before, after Chuck Norris visited the Virgin Islands, they just became known as the Islands. Oh, boy. Yeah. Summer's Case. She's from Santa Barbara, California. Oh. Summer's Case. That's that's actually a really nice name. I hope that's like her her legal name because that is Summer's so awesome. Yeah, I like. I just get a peaceful feeling. Yeah, Jen Durrell, another uh, person from the Yumber Yard. Now, Jen. Yep. I don't know. Yep. I, I being a staple salesman, you would think would be a really boring job. Oh, it's like I, absolutely all, all the other staple salesmen I know. Uh, they they say it's boring, but you know, like she just makes a thing of it. Oh, yeah? Yeah, like she dresses up in a clown outfit. Oh. And and goes door to door selling staples. Oh, and was, didn't, wasn't she a Swing Lines uh, staple salesperson of the decade? I believe so. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I've heard about her. Yeah. I've heard there's, there, I hear that there's a movie in the works about uh, how, how, yeah. how well she sold Swing Line staples. Yeah. 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 Wow. And wow. She's, she actually. I didn't realize that was the same. Jen. Yeah, it's very odd. Holy shit. And and apparently that's what you do in Dildo Newfoundland. Oh, oh. Sell staples door oh, to door. God, this is I can I cannot wait for this this movie. I believe they said it was going to be called Staple Your Way Into My Heart. It's it's going to be great. I cannot wait. Jen, I didn't realize so th- I would have th- brought this up. Thank you for supporting us, Jen. I would have brought this up earlier had I known it was the same Jen. Shauna Dexter from Cumberland, Ontario, after pledge. Thank oh, you, Shauna. Thank you, Shauna. Hannah Herrick. Yep. Yeah, yeah, Hannah, Hannah Herrick, yeah. I believe Hannah Herrick is also from Great Britain. I, I, I call her Double H. Double H? Yeah, that's what I call her from uh, because, our friendship. Yeah. Because she came before Triple H, Triple H's mom. Yeah. How did you know? Because I could see where you were going. You could I mean, see, yeah. No, I did. I really threw that pitch pretty slow. So, yeah. No, absolutely. It's the double H, not triple H. That's right. And uh, not a fan of wrestling, actually. There you go. Even though she's Triple H's mom, she can't stand wrestling. No. She can't stand it. Won't watch it. Uh, actually, like it's created a rift between the two of them. She likes wet plate photography, I hear. Oh my God, that is so cool. Yeah. yeah. She has her own like giant camera that she drags with her everywhere and takes pictures of newts. Oh my goodness. I've got to check this out. Yeah, that, it's she, pretty fascinating. I, uh, uh, I got a tip for you. Build a wet plate van camera. Yeah, and then you're, cool. you could just go anywhere. You're in business. Uh, Amy Polloway from Edmonton, Alberta. Hey, Amy. Karen Meany from Scarborough, Ontario. Karen, we uh, Karen left us some donut money one time. Oh, Karen! That's wow. when we said we should call her Karen Nicey instead of Karen Meany. <laughs> that sounds like us. Lynette Rodman. Yeah, and she's our first Tasmanian. Oh man, that is so cool. She's Thanks. from Tassie. That's so cool. We have friends. Carol and I have a couple of friends in Tassie. So no, say bragging. hi to Beck and Will. Stop bragging, Mike. What? Okay. We good friends in Tasmania. You're well, not better than me. I'm not. Jeez. I didn't say that. Well, you implied it. Tony Jennings from Garden City, Kansas. Hey, Tony. Thank you for supporting us. Yeah. Kelsey Rieger from Belleville, Illinois. 
Oh, Kelsey, thank you so much. And last but not least, uh, another Yumber Yarder, uh, Stephanie Swain from Winnipeg, Manitoba. Thanks, Stephanie. Thank you to our patrons, past and present, for your pledges. We appreciate your support of the show. Oh, we really do. If you want to help support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. Or for a one-time support, you can send us some donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. And we did get some donut money this week from Angelica Gonzalez. Oh, thank you so much, Angelica. Muchos how, gracias. How an- Angelica Look at that. I just, I spoke Spanish. You're implying that she's Spanish. What? Um, Mike, I think it's safe to say. No, no, it's not. It's also no, it's a never safe very to say common anymore. Norwegian name. Oh, Angelica Gonzalez. Yes, yes. Com- common Norwegian, actually Swahili. Sw- oh, eh, potato, potato. Yeah. If you don't already, it would mean a lot to us if you subscribe to the show. You can easily find us on iTunes Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Good. For example, this podcast. Good. Check out our website darkpoutine.com for show notes and other cool stuff. Give us a follow or a like on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Dark Poutine. Google it. Google it, man. Most importantly, tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Join the Umber Yard. Now we have the uh, <laughs> the, the barnyard. The barnyard as well. Yeah, if you want to share some cat pits, uh, cat pics with uh, with your your friends. Yeah. On the so yeah. we yeah we had to create a second group just for uh, pet and animal pictures alone, and it went from zero to four hundred and fifty in about <laughs> three hours. <laughs> That's crazy. Hey, our, our our listeners wanted a place to uh, share their pet love, and so. Fantastic. We gave it to them. We listened. Yeah. yeah. That's it for this week. Until next week, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. Good night.